Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 16th, 2015. Strange things on deck today. Okay, yes, no. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy and bizarre things being said out there in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. And, well, a lot of it doesn't make any sense at all. And the reason why is because what's being said is not what God's Word teaches. And so we have a whole lot of theological and doctrinal innovating going on out there, um, but not a lot of fidelity to sound biblical doctrine. And this is not something that Christ actually permits. And the reason I say that is because Scripture is so clear on this, that those who are pastors and teachers must teach in accord with what's in accord with sound doctrine, Rebuke those who contradict it. This is what they are to be doing. They have to study, show themselves approved. And unfortunately, you know, a large percentage of American evangelicalism is not only not – well, they're not only tolerating false doctrine. They are not tolerating sound doctrine. And they are putting out, you know, anybody, you know, in their, you know, that's in churches, you know, that they go to that actually teach the Bible straight. And they are instead imbibing heavily on those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, but who are not rightly handling God's word. And they do so to their detriment is a good way to put that. So let's talk about what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to kind of ease into this episode because we're going to be in bizarre places today is the best way I can put it. So we're going to start off with Jensen Franklin, a kind of a twin-spin money-grubbing televangelist update. We're going to start with Jensen Franklin, and um, the name of this message is entitled Carry Your Cross Through the Marketplace. And I would say this is a huge misuse of, uh, you know, the account of Jesus being, you know, basically processed through the streets of Jerusalem, 
you know, to go to Golgotha to be crucified. But, uh, you know, you kind of have to get a little bit of the context. We'll play a little bit of the context. And then, you know, uh, still under the auspices of the money-grubbing televangelist update, we're going to listen to T.D. Jakes. And there is a message that was literally just posted entitled, I didn't say it it, it would be easy is the name of it. And T.D. Jakes in this video is, well, doing stuff that is just crazy off the chain, bizarre. Um, and uh, and so we're, we're going to deconstruct that. I mean, from speaking in tongues to sowing a $10,000 seed into his own ministry, which, you know, writing a check to yourself, does that count? I mean... I didn't know I could sow a seed in, you know, into my ministry by writing myself a check. But then again, when I cash it, <laughs> you know, what happens? So, you know, there's some weird stuff going on there. We'll, we'll take a, li- a listen to that. And then second half of the first hour, we're going to spend quite a bit of time listening to Rick Warren. And one of the most bizarre twists I've heard him do in a while. And which means it's you know it's kind of tough to shock me, but this is like egregiously bad. The name of the sermon that we'll be listening to, at least a portion of, it, is is entitled "Letting God's Vision," uh, "Getting God's Vision for My Life," "Getting God's Vision for My Life," and yeah, I mean, talk about a major twist to the Book of Habakkuk. And then in hour number two. Uh, the best thing I can do is say you probably need to be sitting down for the sermon review is a good way to put it. We are going to be reviewing a sermon from somebody we've never listened to uh, before, and his name is uh, Rian Rue, and uh, the name of the sermon is entitled Snort Like a Horse. Yeah, and uh, he's from Nexus Church in Queensland, Australia, so... uh, (laughs) Snort like a horse. And all I can say is you don't want to have any liquids in your mouth while listening to this sermon because you might end up snorting that liquid out of your mouth and through your nostrils. Just saying. So, you know, some strange stuff that we're going to be covering on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're going to start off with a money-grubbing televangelist update, first with um, Jensen Franklin and then with T.D. Jakes, that requires us to do this. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutschmark's getting dearer and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. Quite as wonderful as money, 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 money. money. Nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must anger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that waits the world go round, 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 you round. You can keep round, your marks ways, round, but it's only round. just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. All right, that's the Monty Python money song. And uh, what we're going to be listening to is, like I said, we're easing into this episode of Fighting for the Faith. You know, we're, you know, we'll start off with the nearly sounding sane. Then we'll take a hard turn into the just bizarre and then into the really like bizarre twisting of God's word and then, you know, into snorting like a horse. So uh, what we're going to be listening to is a message from Jensen Franklin entitled Carry Your Cross Through the Marketplace. 
And the the thing is, is that he's trying to basically imply in this teaching that that the fact that Jesus carried his cross through the marketplace somehow has implications uh, for uh, Christian business owners and things like that. Uh, and he's going to be starting off by talking about how, well, everybody, you know, has or needs the anointing, not just preachers, which kind of begs the question, what is he talking about when he's talking about the anointing? But uh, here's Jensen Franklin to explain. I really think we need to understand that the anointing is just not something for preachers and people on a platform that have some kind of gift that we see every Sunday. Yeah, and what anointing in particular are you actually referring to? The anointing. What what anointing? You know, it's this this nebulous thing. You know, and by the way, this is part of what I think makes up the idea that Jesus was warning us about in uh, in Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus warns us about false Christs and false prophets. And let me explain, in fact, let me read it to you uh, from Matthew 24, um, talking about the signs of the last days, birth pangs, if you would, immediately before his return. And here's what he says, uh, Matthew 24, verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise to perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, the uh, the word Christos um, is, well, it means anointed one. Uh-huh. So part of, you know, part of, you know, the, this weird teaching that we see in certain charismatic circles is the so, so-called doctrine of the quote-unquote anointing. And so here Jensen Franklin is talking about the anointing. And, and of course, my question is, well, if if Christians are to be focusing on the anointing, you know, and and uh, and are rightly understand, well, who has the anointing and who doesn't have the anointing, and and who the anointing is for and who it's not for, you know, that kind of stuff. Why are we not going to a New Testament epistle that talks about the importance of the anointing and and then lays out the biblical text that you know that give us the right understanding of the anointing, it, it, the, at least in the way he's talking about it. And because there are a lot of people running around claiming to have the anointing, which makes them Christoi. Yeah, they're they're anointed ones. And I would say they're pseudo-Christoi, false Christs, as Jesus is warning us about. But let's continue with this, this uh, carry your cross through the marketplace uh, sermon. The anointing, folks, is on you. It is on you. And please don't minimize it because the anointing is the anointing. It's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the anointing is the anointing, it's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, everybody who's a Christian has the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you're a penitent believer in Jesus Christ, baptized penitent believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. So for you to sit there and kind of make this distinction, then, well, if the anointing is the Holy Spirit, then anybody who's truly a believer in Christ is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So why are we talking about it in these in this way? As if you can somehow be a Christian and not have the the anointing, aka the Holy Spirit. And just like I don't dare walk into this pulpit without preparing my soul for my calling. I've read my Bible today. I've prayed today. I've studied today. I've sought God. I've asked Him for wisdom. I've asked Him to lead me and guide me. If I take my anointing serious. You have the same anointing that I have. If I take my anointing serious. 
See, now, can you say that about – you just said the anointing equals the Holy Spirit. So what, why are we talking about the Holy Spirit as like my anointing in that sense? Yeah, it, again, there's something weird going on with this anointing talk, and I don't think it's biblical at all. You should never approach your job that you're not praying in the car on the way to your job. Just like I would, I would be afraid. I, I would be nervous. I would be... Um, you know, if I walk up here and I'm not prepared, I'm, if anything, I'm over-prepared. Because, you know, you got to give God something to anoint. And, and, and so, so here's, here's what I'm saying to you. I, I have to give God something to anoint. Which biblical text says that exactly? I, I need to give something to God so that he can anoint it. What am I supposed to give him? Just like I wouldn't approach my place as a you know New Testament priest or preacher, as we would call it. You should not approach your anointing in a light way. As a yeah, again, my anointing. You've said it, you keep referring to it as my anointing. You call it you know the you know the anointing. Then you said it's the Holy Spirit, and then you're talking about it in weird ways that you know that just don't make any sense. You know, I in order for me to understand what God would have me understand regarding the anointing, I need a clear text. Can you give me one? Wife, or as a uh, computer analyst, or whatever it is that you do, a mechanic, you should pray. You should prepare. You should stir up that anointing. You should say, like I said, so God- I have to stir up the Holy Spirit really need you tonight. What, what if I'd have called you this afternoon and said, I need you to, I need you to speak tonight. G- Jason, are you ready? You're going to speak tonight. You know what you'd have done? Oh my God. He'd have went in some room somewhere. He would have sweat bullets. He'd have cried. He'd have prayed. He'd have fasted. Why? Because it's, we ought to approach our jobs that way. If the anointing is the anointing and the Bible said he anoints kings and priests, it's not a play thing. Yeah, again, can you show me that text in context, please? And and I'm not saying get crazy about it, but I'm just saying maybe maybe we ought to approach our job like a preacher or a minister approaches the pulpit because that's your calling and that's your anointing. Yeah, if uh, if people out there uh, approach their jobs the way so many pastors and preachers uh, you know approach the pulpit, they'd find themselves out of a job because you know. Let's see. I got preachers teaching for shameful gain, things they ought not to teach, twisting God's word, not teaching the truth, speaking lies. Yeah, that's a sure formula to get yourself fired. You know, maybe we should, maybe we should approach our workplace like that is our. That is the anointed place that God has put me for such a time as this. And here's why it's important. That's your place of influence. This is my place of influence. I don't dare step into it not really, you know, having not prayed and not sought God and not said, Lord, please help me tonight. I would never do that. And your place of influence is your job or your home if you're, if you're a, 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 a homekeeper. And you should never just think of that thing as casual. The day that I get to where this is casual, I think God has a right to remove his anointing from my life. So God's going to remove the Holy Spirit from you? Again, what anointing are you referring to? Isn't it interesting that Jesus took 
the cross through the marketplace? Um, uh, sure, yeah, that's really interesting. Why is it interesting exactly? The Via Della Rosa was not a back street. He chose to carry the cross right down the middle of commerce and, and business. And the reason why that is significant is what? I mean, kind of the way I look at it is, is from where Jesus was basically tried and then sentenced to death, you know, then beaten, scourged, and, you know, had the crown of thorns pressed into his head, and then, you know, basically had his cross heaved on him. From that point to Golgotha requires him to be marched through the streets. And the uh, Roman soldiers, you know, they, the whole part of the idea behind crucifixion was its uh, terrorism tactic. It was a basically a form of psychological warfare that basically said, hey, this is what happens to those who cross us. And so, you know, marching people through the streets was all part of the, uh, you know, the, the terrorist, you know, psychology of crucifixion itself. And it's not like Jesus was saying, hey, you know, um, you know, I know we're on our way to Golgotha. Golgotha. Can we swing by the Via Della Rosa? I, I really want to march my cross through the Via Della Rosa so I can go through the marketplace so that by doing so, I can signal to all Christians throughout the ages that I've, by doing so, I've sanctified the marketplace or something like that. What? Busyness and secular Jerusalem. The cross, we've got enough crosses in the church. We need some crosses in the business place. Uh So because Jesus marched his cross to the Via Della Rosa, we need more crosses in the business place. I hate to say this, but uh, there was a time when I was a freelance graphic artist and, uh, you know, marketing plan kind of guy. And I would, um, you know, I would help, you know, businesses, you know, put together their logos and websites and marketing materials and things like that. Long time ago, I was a young guy when I was doing that. But um, no joke, anytime I would receive, you know, I would have a client and then they, you know, wrote a check to me and it would have an ichthus on it. Yeah, that was my signal that I needed to take the check in to the bank and cash it. Um, otherwise, it was going to bounce. No joke. And that happened to me on more than one occasion. So, yeah, there's Jensen Franklin talking about something that has to do with what he thinks is called the anointing. Uh, and yet it's very fuzzy as to what exactly he's referring to. And uh, and then this idea that don't you think it's interesting that um, that Jesus marched his cross through the marketplace? You know, as if somehow that has some some kind of you know spiritual significance for Christian business owners, and it doesn't. So, hmm. moving along, we're still under the uh, general umbrella of money grubbing televangelist, and what we're going to be listening to is T.D. Jakes from his message entitled "I Didn't Say It Would Be Easy," and uh, him basically going full blown. Uh, you know, like crazy kind of Pentecostal on us. And uh, let's uh, listen in and see if we can make any sense of this. You will own this. You will own this. You will own this. You will own this. 
You will own this. You will own this. You will own this. You will own. You will own it. You will own it. You will stomp your foot. Own it. God said, the moment I see your foot on it, shallow, it's going to shift. Yeah, this is kind of the build-up for, you know, he's, you know, well into this sermon. And, you know, as soon as you put your foot on it, the, something's going to shift. Yeah, anytime I hear somebody, you know, like T.D. Jakes talking about shifting, yeah, the only thing that's shifting is, like, you know, people's money from their wallets to his wallet. But we continue. For somebody's property, for somebody's business, for somebody's peace, for somebody's healing. I don't know what it is you're trying to possess, but there are struggles and oppositions and disagreements around it. There will be a tremendous shift after this. There will be a tremendous mm, Big shift coming. Shift after this. There will be a tremendous shift after this. Normally at this point, I make an altar call. I'm not going to do it. I don't feel led to do it. I want you to get me, honey, I want you to get me an offering, a $10,000 offering. I want to sow it into this moment. There's some things I need to shift for us in our marriage and in our life, and I want you to... Yeah, he's talking to his wife. He wants to sow a $10,000 seed offering into his own ministry in order to make things shift in his life. Um, yeah, so writing a check to yourself, uh, does that count as sowing a seed into your ministry? I'm, I'm curious. And where in, exactly in Scripture does it say that in order for us to have things shift in our lives that we need to uh, sow a seed offering into somebody's ministry? I want to stand in agreement. Before you do anything, I want you to point this way. Come, come, come here, honey. Come, just come with it. So here comes Lady Jakes, and she's got a $10,000 check in her hand. We're pregnant again. Okay. So that, that doesn't mean they're, you know, physically pregnant. They're pregnant with something regarding, you know, some vision, dream, destiny thing for their lives. Point, point this way. Come into agreement with you right now Jesus in the name sweet. of Jesus. Every yoke, every opposition, every struggle. With and that's her supposedly speaking in tongues. This is not what tongues is, by the way. Broken in the name of Jesus. I touch and agree with you right now in Jesus' name. In the middle of the shifting and the shaking and the breaking and the pain. I thank you for the promise. We come into agreement as parents. We will birth the purpose of God in our lives, even in this season. Birth the purpose of God in our lives, even in this season. Um, what on earth are they talking about? We continue. Never before. Say that. Say that your power is broken. Did any of see? Say that your power is broken. Say that your power is broken. Say that your power, your tactic. Yeah, just sitting there and saying, Satan, your power is broken doesn't accomplish anything. Plans, your enemies, your discouragements, your fear, your bondage, your pain. Right now. Oh, in the name of Jesus. The glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the glory, the glory, the glory, the glory. Yeah, by the way, what he's doing right now, Scripture strictly forbids. Yeah, and uh, here's what, what I mean by that. If you have your Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians 
um, chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to take a look at uh, what Scripture teaches for those who legitimately possess the gift of tongues. And uh, let, let me um, let me start at verse uh, 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray with a tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. And by the way, that means language. Uh, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit. I will also sing uh, with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words with a tongue. Mm -hmm. Moving forward to verse 26. So what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. God's word forbids the speaking of tongues in church without an interpreter. We take you. We come into a line. We come into a line. We come into a line. Yeah, where in scripture are we told to come into alignment? Come into a line. We come into a line. We come into a line. We come into agreement. Pressed down. Shaken together. Running over. Pressed down. Shaken together. Running over. Pressed down. Shaken together, running over. And I lay hands on you. I speak to every affliction, every infirmity in your body, everything that's risen against your health. To and now he's doing that famous, uh, you know, faith healer move. He's got his hand on his wife's forehead, and she's got her hands out spread eagle, and her, her forehead is pointing towards the ceiling. From doing what your heart would do in the name of Jesus, from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, body be healed every whip, every time. And she just fell backwards into the arms of a catcher. Tissue, every corpuscle, every cell, every bone, every drop of blood in your body, in your belly, I command healing, in your belly, I command healing, in your son. Yeah, he needs a crazy praise for God there. Yeah, that was crazy, all right, but I wouldn't praise God for it because I don't think that had anything to do with God the Holy Spirit whatsoever. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, an extended Rick Warren update as he tells us how to, well, find God's destiny for our lives. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Men, this egregious foe has been plaguing the seas for long enough. To arms! Man the battle stations and hoist the colors! Aye, aye, sir. Man the battle stations and hoist the colors! Drummer and man battle station. Aye, aye, sir. You heard the man. Get to work. Come on, keep going. The enemy's not gonna wait for us. Put your back to your life. Come on, get those spiders. Get them weird out. No warning and complaint. Come on, let's get go. Go, go, go. Captain, sir, they're turning to meet us. With this clear weather, we couldn't have had the element of surprise. Well, no matter. We have the wind on our side and our men are ready. We should be pulling up alongside them any minute now. Give me a status report! Sir, the enemy ship has us outgunned by at least three to one. The gunner's mates are reporting that we're running low on gunpowder and half the crew is suffering from Montezuma's revenge. Never fear, my good man, for it says that with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you say so, Captain Furnick. They're now within firing range, Captain. Mr. Smithers, send them a... Hang on, let me do this myself. Send them a warning shot off of their port bow. Fire the cannons, I, sir! That was merely a warning shot, Captain. They could have very well have hit us. I think they wished for us to surrender to avoid bloodshed. Nonsense! You think we would surrender in our hour of triumph? God has clearly stated that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We can't lose. Let loose the cannons. But, but we're not within violence. If I wanted your opinion, I'd have given it to you. I say, fire! Fire! 
I've never seen a warning shot where they used all their cannons before. The blasted fool shot before he was in range. I can only assume that he means to not surrender. Quickly fire a barrage into their port side while they reload. Aye, aye, sir. Fire the cannons! God on my side. He said this to me, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Why Why aren't we firing our cannons? We've now lost half our cannons due to the last attack. Come on, men. We can't lose. Aye, aye, sir. Are they even trying anymore? By all accounts, I believe they are. Let's pull up alongside and see if we can't reason with them. It would be bad form to slaughter them without mercy. Hello, over there! Go away! We have nothing to say to you! I wanted to negotiate the terms of your surrender. My surrender? It is you who will be surrendering to us. What on earth is he talking about, Captain? Maybe he's suffering from malnutrition and heat stroke? No, I, I think he's serious. Now look here. You're outgunned with no way of winning. We wish to show you mercy. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Why is he quoting the Bible? No, a quote would require a context. What he's done is called proof texting. Enough talk, men. Ready? Aim. What was that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of your mass being demolished. But, but, uh, no! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, would you look at that? Your rudder is gone, too. <clears throat> It'll be a little difficult for you to sail without it, don't you think? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is it me? Or is your ship now sinking? Nah, maybe it is me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If it's all the same to you, I think we've lost this fight. I'm surrendering. Geronimo! Satan's with you. I can't take another minute with this lunatic. Stop it! Stop it right now! All of you come back. We, we, we can't lose. We have... God on our side. We shall prevail. We will. Well, that was surprisingly easy. Makes me wonder how they were even viewed as a threat in the first place. Most inept sailors to ever sail the seven seas. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions 
because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that many of the so-called manifestations of the Spirit today are not the Holy Spirit. And that would be a good thing, because they're not. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along, we have a a purpose-driven update, which requires us to do this. I don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait. All right, what we're going to be listening to from Rick Warren is entitled Getting God's Vision for My Life. Getting God's Vision for My Life. And this is a supreme twisting of Scripture. I mean, this is egregious what we're about to listen to. But here's Rick Warren to explain to us the importance of getting God's vision for our lives. Here we go. Good morning, Saddleback. Wow, it's good to see you here today. If you'll take out your message notes. You know, this week I was reading about a guy who had really been going through some tough times during this 
this recession. And he, you know, he'd lost his job and he'd lost his home. And there was a quote that he said that really stuck with me. He said, you know, for me, the American dream has become a nightmare. God did not create you for the American dream. That is not your purpose on life. In fact, I will tell you that as your pastor, I have no interest in all, at all in helping you fulfill the American dream. Because the American dream is about things. The acquisition of things. And the Bible says that is not the purpose of life, just getting more. The purpose of your life is far, far greater than simply grow up, go to school, make money, retire, and die. As I've told you many times, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. <laughs> and I'm not interested in helping you fulfill the American dream because the American dream, frankly, is a dead end. Having it all is not enough. There's more than just the good life. Having the goods, looking good, feeling good. In fact, there's a better life. You know, for many years, when I was a kid, as a baby, I've told you this before, when I was a baby, my mother fed me strained spinach. I thought it was really great. I now think feeding your child strained spinach is child abuse. But I thought it was really good until I discovered SpaghettiOs. Now, SpaghettiOs were not the good life. They were the better life. And as a little kid, I thought SpaghettiOs were pretty great until I discovered In-N-Out Burger. And, and, and I, you know, I've always thought, if there is more, wouldn't I want to know about it? Yes. If there's something more than the good life, if you were made for more than the American dream, wouldn't you want to know about it? Oh, yeah. You see, what you need is not the American dream. You need God's dream for your life. Why he made you. And the truth is, you were made for far more than just make money, retire, and die. Now, what he's saying is true. You were made for more than, you know, making money, retiring, and dying. However, that, I think, is a crass way of summarizing how many of us spend our lives. There, there are many people who are Christians who understand that they serve their neighbor in their vocation, and their vocations are where many of their good works are done, and these are pleasing to God. Scripture makes this clear. So there's a sense in which he's set up, if you would, a false dichotomy that, you know, that doesn't take into account that Scripture clearly teaches that uh, our, that you know you know slaves are to obey their masters and things like that, and husbands love their wives, and these are this is all part of the vocations that God has put us into, uh, the, where we do our good works. So He's using this kind of, if you would, you know, in there are people we all know people like this, you know, who spend their lives, you know, basically, you know, making their purpose, you know, to a- acquire things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you and if you're working and serving your vocation, uh, you're serving your neighbor in vocation, that that's what you're doing. So we got a little bit of a problem here because he didn't start with the biblical text. He started with what something that sounds reasonable, but once you push on it, you realize there's some limits to even the metaphor that he's talking about. God has a dream for your life, and when you get God's vision, God's dream for your life, life makes sense, and all of a sudden you go, "This is it." There's meaning, there's significance, there's satisfaction, there's purpose, there's value. There's a spring in your step. You have a reason to get up in the morning than just, I've got to go back to work to pay for all the things that I've made. 
yeah, but that's not the only reason why people go to work. And that's what Decade of Destiny is all about. Helping you discover God's dream in the seven key areas of your life. Your family, your money, your health, your spiritual life, your relationships, your career, your mental health, your emotional health, and all these things. Now, if you want to make major change in your life, you got to do more than just focus on your behavior. If you want a short change in your life, focus on changing your behavior. But if you want to make long-term permanent change, you got to focus on the way you think. You've got to change your vision. You got to, you got to, you got to, you got to. Notice he hasn't opened a biblical text yet. He's, this is not a doctrine taught in scripture. This is Rick Warren's idea. You, you need to do these things in order to get God's vision for your life. Hmm. If this is what we as Christians need to be doing, then why isn't there a clear biblical te- text in scripture that teaches us to do this? You've got to change your mindset. You've got to change your paradigm. You've got to repent, which means to change your mind. Some of you have started on the Daniel plan with us. And, uh, and, but you, you weren't... Which, by the way, even Daniel didn't lose weight on his so-called Daniel plan. He gained weight. Read it in the book of Daniel. What I said, and you've been trying to do it by willpower. I'm just going to change the way I eat and focus on that and force myself to do the right things. And you're already getting tired and giving up. And you're already giving up on it because you weren't listening. You have to change your relationship to things if you're going to make permanent change. You have to change your relationship to food. For it to be long-term change. You have to change your relationship to money if you're going to ever get out of debt. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta. This is all law, but it's not biblical law. This is all Rick Warren's law, if you would. This was uh, apparently revealed to Rick Warren on Mount Saddleback out there in uh, Southern California. Change your relationship to God if you're going to ever spiritually grow. You're going to have to change your relationship to your husband or your wife It's all in the way you think about it if you want your marriage to be better. You can't just change your behavior. That will last about a month. And then you'll go back to your old ways. Decade of Destiny is about getting new relationships to money, new relationship to food, new relationship to your job. And you see it in a whole different way. And yet you say you're not about having people, uh, well, um, live the American dream. Hmm. Sounds to me like you've just come up with a spiritual version of the American dream that you're trying to help people live. What you need is not television. You need God's vision. So, well, how do I get God's vision for my life? Yeah, exactly. How do we get it? I'd like to know. That's what we're going to look at this week. Now, as I end this series on listening to God, and I hope you followed me on these other two messages... Uh, And as we begin next week, a mini-series on what does it take to really change as we go up to Easter. This message today is kind of a transition between hearing God and getting his vision and what it takes to really change. Because the starting point for any change is a new vision. Now, how do I know God's vision? How do I get a vision for my life? How do I get God's dream for my life? Yeah, again, you've asked it several times. Exactly, how do I do this? I mean, I need a clear biblical text that explains this to me. Fortunately, there's an entire book in the Bible about that very question. Really? 
you know, remember when everyone used to say "color me this" or "color me that"? Yeah, I, I'm going to date myself here, but hang on a second here. <clears throat> color me skeptical. Mm-hmm. I don't believe for a second that there is an entire book in the Bible dedicated to teaching us how to find God's vision for our life. It's a little tiny book. If you open your Bible in the middle, you come to the book of Psalms. You're in the Old Testament. You go a little bit further over here. You come to a book called Habakkuk. Not tobacco, Habakkuk. Really, the book of Habakkuk is all about the steps that I need to go through in order to hear and learn God's vision for my life. Now, we're going to test this by opening up the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a minor prophet. So let's take a look at it. And uh, you'll notice that if you have your Bible, Habakkuk is really, really, really short. So we're going to take a look. We're going to test to see if the book of Habakkuk gives us steps for, well, finding and hearing or learning God's vision for our lives so that we can discover our destiny. All right. Habakkuk, a, 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 a chapter one, verse one, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. So, all right, we, we're now right into the thick of it. And maybe we want to learn a little bit about the background of Habakkuk. But let's take a look at what it says, and we'll see if we can figure this out. Habakkuk, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Sounds to me like things aren't going very well in Israel at the time of Habakkuk. And uh, there's injustice. People who are not following God's law. And justice is being perverted, and they're basically wicked everywhere. And Habakkuk's crying out to God and saying, how long are you going to let this go on? That's what he's doing there. We continue. Verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. So God's answering here. (laughs) Hey, listen. Cool your heels there, Habakkuk. I've got everything under control. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, is what God is saying. Verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Okay. So Habakkuk asks the question, how long are you going to allow injustice to go on and you know things to be perverted here in Israel? God answers, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Next question from Habakkuk. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? 
We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower to look to see what he will say to me and what I will and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So then the Lord answered me, Habakkuk 2, verse 2. So you'll notice there's a dialogue going on here. How long are you going to allow things to go perverted? God answers, you know, and then Habakkuk asks another question, and now God's answering. And so the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God says, write this vision down on tablets because, and what's the vision? Oh, God's raising up the Chaldeans to... uh, to punish Israel. That's what he's supposed to write down. And, you know, he's a prophet. So you'll notice here that, you know, what's missing in the book of Habakkuk? The how-to stuff that Rick Warren claims is in there. Thankfully, we have an entire book of the Bible that teaches us how to get God's vision for our life. It doesn't teach this at all. This is about basically a prophecy of judgment against Israel and a warning sent by the prophet Habakkuk from God to Israel to let them know that God's going to raise up the Chaldeans to, to punish them for their wickedness. That's what's, that's what's happening here. So God says, write this down, make it plain so that he may run, run, get, run for your life who reads it. That's what's going on in verse 2. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as white as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and the waters cover the sea. 
Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, you who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as with the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when it makes when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And then it ends with a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, that chapter 3 you know, goes on to a prayer. Here's Habakkuk's prayer. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, of, ye, of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth and was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains in the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode your, on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, and raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flashing of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of those of the wicked, laying him bare from the thigh to the neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, Yahweh, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Apparently this was sung even. That is all of Habakkuk. So did you catch all the how-tos there about how you can find your purpose, you know, the things that you need to do in order to discover your purpose? Did you did you see them in there as I was reading the uh, prophet Habakkuk? I didn't see any how-to information about how to hear and find your purpose or anything like that. In other words, Rick Warren is pulling a fast one, and he is literally 
speaking bold and that bold, wicked lies to the people there at Saddleback. We continue. Habakkuk is a three-chapter book, and you better be glad that one's in the Bible because it tells you how to get God's dream for your life. Yeah, that's right. You just heard him say that. Habakkuk apparently teaches you how to get God's dream for your life. I just read out all three chapters. I didn't see anything about how to get God's dream for my life in there at all. Did you? I'd like to study some of these little minor prophets in the Bible so that when you get to heaven, you're not going to be embarrassed. Because I guarantee you, someday in heaven, Habakkuk's going to come up to you and says, Hey, how'd you like my book? And you go, Oh, oh, Mr. Habakkuk, I didn't even know you were in the Bible. So I, I want you to be able to go, Oh, hey, you know that stuff you wrote about how to get God's vision? Good stuff, man. Really, really. Yeah, you say that to Habakkuk and he's going to laugh in your face. Of course, if you really believe that this is what God's word teaches, you're believing false doctrine. The person teaching you about Habakkuk is lying to you, which means your soul is actually in danger. And there's a good chance you'll never actually get the opportunity to meet or speak with Habakkuk. Good. Really helpful to me back there in 2011. Now, the background of this book, Habakkuk, is the country of Israel is in chaos for a number of reasons. Number one, they are in economic recession. Number two, people are out of work and many of them are starving. Number three, they're in constant conflict. And number four, they're being attacked by terrorists. Does this sound vaguely familiar? And in chapter one, Habakkuk asks six very profound questions. They're all the questions you've asked. Why is this happening, Lord? Why is this happening to me, Lord? Are you going to do anything about this, God? How long is this going to take? Why do I have to put up with this? Have you ever asked these questions? Yes, you have. And in Habakkuk chapter one, he asks these six most common questions. Why is this happening and how long is it going to take? How long and why do I have to put up with this? And then in chapter 2, he stops. He says, okay, I've said my piece. Now I'm going to shut up and I'm going to listen. And I'm going to wait for your vision. And in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, God's... I'm going to wait for your vision. What? Okay. If you will do these six things that I tell you to do, I'm going to help you see why what is happening in your life is happening. What? So God responds, if you do these six things, and I'll tell you why these things are happening. I just read out all three chapters. And n- nowhere does God say, if you do these six things, then I'll, give, I'll show you your vision or anything like that. This is utter nonsense. To help you get your vision for the future corrected. I'm going to help you get God's dream for your life. Mm-hmm. So with that introduction, um, do you think there's any chance that the people at Saddleback are going to uh, come to a correct understanding of what the book of Habakkuk is about? Not on your life. Uh, you know, what Rick Warren is engaging in here is just utter doctrinal obfuscation. He's not interested in exegeting God's word and teaching it correctly. This is apparently a how, you know, who knew Habakkuk was a how-to on how to, uh, you know, get God's vision for your life. The six things that God told Habakkuk he needed to do in order to get his vision. Yeah, like I said, just read it out. Didn't see any of that stuff anywhere in there, Rick. Um, in, In other words, the poor folks at Saddleback, they are in dire danger because they are being taught not by a shepherd, 
Instead, they're being taught by a wolf. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be listening to a sermon from a church we've never reviewed before about snorting like a horse. No joke. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc. But simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Fasten your seatbelts. That's just a word of caution.
cold. Look up the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Nexus Church, Queensland, Australia. Pastor Rian Roo presiding. I don't know if it's Rian or Ryan. Weird way of spelling it. R-I-A-N. Anyway, uh, what we're going to be listening to is entitled, yeah, get this, Snort Like a Horse. Yeah, in all of my years of being a Christian, the decades that I have been a believer in Jesus Christ, I have never once been told that the Bible teaches me to snort like a horse. So imagine my disgust when today I reviewed this sermon and learned that I need to snort like a horse. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Pastor Rue and his sermon entitled Snort Like a Horse. Here we go. We hope this message inspires and encourages you. For more information, please contact Nexus Church. We are in the final week of the This Is Why series, which has been going for a while, and it's been fantastic to see the heritage of our church, where we've come from, and, and the heart for where we're going. And last week, like, it was crazy, the vision offering, we got like a quarter of a million dollars in a day. It's like... A, a quarter of a million dollar what offering? Vision offering. What a bunch of nonsense. Wow. Okay. That's unreal. Yeah, it's unreal that you would have a vision offering. That's so not even biblical. It's unreal if we know why we did it. Yeah, they did it because they were taught false doctrine. Why do we want to expand? Why do we want to grow? Why do we want to do Nexus Care? Why do we want to do the things we do? And if, if we don't get the why, then... It seems a little bit senseless to give your money or your time or your effort into something that you don't know why. And so we've got one more week of, of why. And for me, I think the why is important. I don't know about you, but I do a lot of ritualistic things in my life. Sometimes I just go to the fridge and I don't even realize I'm in, in front of the fridge until my face gets cold. <laughs> and it's, even then it's like, ah, oh, salami? <laughs> Does anyone want to go to the fridge and don't realize that yes? I don't know, just in the front of the fridge, or I have to close the cupboard before I go to bed. I can't sleep with the cupboard door open. It's impossible. Cupboard, cupboard people, yes, a couple of cupboard people, have to have my feet clean before I go to bed. I love that crispy feeling. Um, now, when it comes to church things, this goes to the next level, because one time, I was going to the shops, and I ended up in the Nexus Church car park. And I'm sitting there going... There must have been a reason. I must be here for some purpose. And I sat there and I was really thinking hard. And there wasn't a reason. It's just a driving ritual. I come here so much. I work here, by the way. And I Yeah, if you want to know the reason, maybe you should do the six things that God told Habakkuk to do so that he can discover his purpose for his vision for his life thingy. Mm-hmm. I sort of come here so much, I'm meant to be at the shops. And I think when... When, when, sometimes we just get these rituals in our lives. Maybe you've inherited from your parents and coming to church on a Sunday, being a part of this community has been something you've just always done. But if ritual is the reason why, 
then pretty soon it's going to get a little bit boring and a little bit dull and the whole thing is going to feel a little bit meaningless. And we don't want that. So this part of this This Is Why series has just been to refresh us. What is this all about? What are we doing here? And it's been awesome. We've seen that this is, as part of this church, we love coming here to worship. We love coming here to, ex- to experience the presence of God and to, and to worship God together. And, and coming to church to experience the presence of God. What is that? What is the cash value of that statement? We come to church to experience the presence of God. What does that mean exactly? And we, we love that. We love the preaching of the Bible, and we're going to get to that, which is exciting. We, we love that. We love the idea of discipleship. We, we love um, the idea that we're a family because we understand that people need to belong. So we do this because we understand that people need to belong. But there's one other reason, and it's a bit of an overarching reason which the other ones fit into, and it's, it's the reason that we want to be a red-hot culture-engaging, missional church that reaches the world with the love of God. Yeah, if you're going to reach the world with the love of God, that requires you to actually preach God's Word correctly, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, like Jesus said to do in Luke 24, and actually preach the love of God in that God you know, so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or you can say that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. In order to reach the world with the love of God, that doesn't mean you know some kind of sentimental love. It actually means the sacrificial love of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross in dying for our sins to secure our salvation. And that is one of our unmovable values. But why do we have that? Why? Why would I want to reorientate my life towards that? I mean, it sounds nice. It sounds like a good principle to be outward focused and reaching and so forth. But surely there's a reason why that is a value for us intrinsically within the human soul, that we would want to care for another person. For me, the whole why is summarized by this concept Two little Latin words, missio day, missio day. I'm not exaggerating when I say when I came to an understanding of what this context, what this statement means, it revolutionised my world. I'm not. If you really understood the missio dei, then you would be preaching Christ and Him crucified, proclaiming law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, rather than talking about the Missio Dei. You can't actually fulfill the Missio Dei or really have anything to do with it without, well, you can't do it while talking about it. You have to actually preach Christ crucified for our sins. I'm not even exaggerating. It changed the way I thought about myself. It changed the way I thought about the church. It changed the way I thought about reading the Bible. But most of all, it changed the way I feel about God. And that's incredibly important to me. Really, really, really important to me. And it gives me the framework so, so profoundly of why we do what I do. Why Sally and I chose to come to this church. Why I'm standing on the platform tonight. It started when I was 18. And you, you're going to do more of talking about you. If, again, if you're really concerned about the Missio Dei, you need to preach Christ. Why are we talking about you? And... I don't know about you guys, but when I was 18, I was going through this period where I was like, so am I a man now? 
You guys know what I mean over here? The younger guys. But it's like, am I, is, like, is there something I need to do? Do I look like, do I need to like jump through a hoop or sign a piece of paper or like, when am I a man and what indicates that to me? So I was a bit frustrated because Western culture had no sort of initiation process for me. So I just, I'll just make my own one up. I'm going to buy a round the world ticket and that's going to be sort of like my challenge to myself. So round the round the world ticket, first stop Bangkok. And uh, I got to Bangkok and uh, got off the plane. I was on my own. So I sort of went down the streets and people started giving me those cards with uh, little girls on them. Mm-hmm. You know what? I feel a gratuitous Fighting for the Faith musical interlude coming on. Bangkok, Oriental sitting in the city, don't know what the city is. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything. Sorry about that. Uh, I grew up in the 80s. I couldn't help it. <clears throat> we continue. I was like, I did not expect that. First thing, I, first thing that happens to me off the plane. I was a little bit shocked by that. Really rattled by that. And then I go to the ATM to pay for my very fantastic Luxa. And somehow I lose or get stolen my debit card. And I have enough money to make it back to the airport but not enough money to pay for the airport tax, which is going to fly me to Delhi, northern India. So I'm at the airport, and I haven't got enough money to pay for my airport tax, so I give my dad a call. I've got enough money to do that. My last bit of coin goes towards calling my dad. And I said, Dad, yeah. So I know I've only been away for half a day. (laughs) But I lost my card, and I've got no money. Now, I want you to pay attention in the sermon to how many personal stories um, he tells as opposed to how much time he spends in a biblical text. And we'll kind of point out what he does with this biblical text when we get there, but uh, we're not there yet. He's like, yes. What would you like me to do? I said, something. Like, <laughs> I've got no money. And then the phone cuts out. So I'm at Bangkok, Bangkok Airport. No money, so... I start going and just begging people for some money. Nobody, 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 no one's interested. Eventually, an old lady who's sweeping the floors opens her wallet and gives me the entire content, right? And I was like, whoa. And uh, so now I'm sitting at the, at the gate and I'm waiting to fly to northern India with no money. And I got this little pocket Bible that I took with me and I just went straight to Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You're right and they, you know. So I started doing that. Got to India and then my bag didn't turn up. And I could see as I'm waiting, everyone else is gone and even the people that are collecting people, they're gone. And I can notice the person that's supposed to be picking me up isn't there and I have no bag and I have no money. I love traveling. I'm thinking, this is awesome. <laughs> Anyways, things sort itself out, and, and I get some Western Union money transfer, and I, I start with all the money I've got. My bag eventually comes, like, I don't know what they were doing to it. It came along, and, 
and, I, and there was a guy who was waiting for me in the car park, and he took me on a, on a, on a journey through northern India. And it, it was fun at first. The first few days, I was like, wow, this is just wild, and the spices, and the, and, and, and the, and the food, and, and everything was just incredible. Um, but as day and day, day went on and then on and then on, the experience started getting a little bit sad. And I'd go into like the, the slum areas and, and you'd see just the, the diseases, cholera, hep, hepatitis and, and rabies. And of course, I didn't have my rabies shot because I was 18 and, you know, come on. And so I didn't have my rabies vaccination and I'm freaking out, absolutely freaking out. And um, so I went through that experience like leprosy, like I thought we dealt with that, right? No, people have leprosy and, you know, their, their hands are missing and their faces are missing and, and I'm experiencing these things and my heart is just like drying up, just like struggling and it's getting really, really hard. Eventually, I keep going with my trip and I come back to Brisbane and I'm still processing these things. And to be honest, my, I, I come from Africa originally, so I'd seen some poverty, I'd, I'd seen some, some difficulty my, my parents, you know, always took me to the lesser privileged areas and, and, I, and I experienced a lot of that growing up, but nothing compared me to, I suppose, what I, went exper- what I experienced in India on my own. And then when I came back to Brisbane, it was like, I thought it would be better here. I thought we would be happy with what we have. And I thought we would live these great lives of, you know, gratefulness and and we would be sorted out. And I just saw broken families and d- domestic violence and suicide and, and things that just happened around me. And I felt like, God, surely there's a place somewhere where it's just going right. And- now, this, all of this is the result of our sin. And the solution given in Scripture, won by Christ, is the forgiveness of our sins. God saves us through the curse. He doesn't save us from it. And so we're being saved through the curse that is this world because of sin. And we will eventually come through, if you know, those of us who are penitent believers in Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins, which, by the way, is a gift given by God. We'll come through all of this to the new heavens and new earth on the day when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Make a new heavens, new earth, and things will be made right. Until that, until that happens, we're to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And Christians are the ones who bear fruit in keeping with repentance, not unbelievers and not idolaters. Yeah, like you, you know, the idolaters who are in Bangkok or in India. You see what I'm saying here? We continue. And there wasn't anywhere I looked, and. It made me question God, and it made me think, I don't even know if you're a good God. What are you doing? I don't want to go to church. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to worship. I'm just sad. So he experienced, he experienced some affectung as a result of seeing the and experiencing the uh, consequences of our sin in the world. This, by the way, goes by the name of theodicy. You know, if there's a good God, then why is there evil in the world? But see, the thing is, is that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for our sins. He's going to remake the world, and none of this is going to be in that new new earth. We continue. I'm frustrated. 
I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that this is life. And I think a lot of people feel like that. When you watch the news at night, it seems to be getting worse. But I think even though people feel like that and it tends to be a bit of a hindrance to faith, there's something about Jesus that I think really resonates. Universally, I think. When you talk to people about Jesus, they're like, yeah, he was good. He was a good guy. And I resonate with the things that he was about. So I... What was he about? Because he taught his disciples to be preachers of repentance. Yeah, read Mark 6. started investigating and started pleading with God to show me who he was. And out comes the Missio Dei. So you pleaded with God to tell you who he, show you who he was? If you want to see what God is like and what he's about, you read the scriptures. And you, you, the, you know, the fullest example of what God is like is right there in Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's God in human flesh. And so you say, you ask God to reveal it, and out comes the Missio Dei? Hmm. Hang on, hang on. You smell that? Yeah, it's starting to smell like the social gospel. We continue. The God of mission. Missio Dei means the God of mission. Mission isn't something he does. Mission is an overflow of who he is. His character is good, and what he does is an overflow of who he is. Now this is true. Come with me to John chapter 12. It's actually chapter 11. This is a a point in the life of Jesus where one of his best friends has just died, a young man called Lazarus. He's just died. His sister Mary and Martha are devastated. Also close friends of Jesus. And the whole community is mourning. They're upset that their close friend Lazarus has died. We're going to pick up when Jesus comes on the scene from verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, see the anguish there? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Remember that, greatly troubled. And then he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eye? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to him, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said on the account of these people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. We're going to stop there for a second. In this passage, there is just a tiny little phrase, and it's like a clue to why. Why all of this? Why the church? Why the series? Why the preaching? It's this tiny little word, two little words. He was greatly troubled. In the Greek, that is embremai. Embremai. 
Okay, you're pronouncing it wrong. And to help us with the uh, pronunciation, uh, we, we'll listen to the Logos software, uh, you know, give us the right pronunciation of this. Here we go. Embrimaomai. Embrimaomai. That is how you pronounce it. Embrimaomai. That's right. And by the way, it means to be moved or scolded or to warn sternly. And uh, Brimaomai, by the way, is, uh, you know, is the word for snort, okay? And, yeah, that's what that word means. And so what he's going to do with this is rather fascinating, and uh, it's, <clears throat> it's what we call the genetic fallacy. I'll explain it uh, after he does it, but uh, let's continue. And it literally means in Greek to snort like a horse. Not exactly. Um, the when you take the words themselves, you know the, the the component parts, if you would, it does mean to snort, but not exactly like a horse. But see, the thing is, is that taking a word like embremaomai and and basically looking at its genetic parts, if you would, the the you know its phonetic pieces, and saying that's what it literally means. No, that's not what it means. Uh, you have to actually look at a lexicon to see what it means, and then it means what it means in the context it w in which it appears. So you don't just cut a, a word up into its pieces and say, this is what it means. That's not how you do it. So embrimaomai, it means to insist on something, to sternly warn. This is, by the way, from BDAG, the premier New Testament uh, uh, lexicon. That's one example. It means to scold or to censure. Or the third definition is to feel strongly about something, to be deeply moved within yourself. Okay, so that's what the word means. It does not mean to snort like a horse, although the component parts of it, bramaomai, means to snort. It doesn't mean to snort. Okay, does that make sense? It, yeah. We continue. <laughs> snort like a horse and the imagery in Greek is of this war horse ready for battle and it's like the the rider is just holding his back and he's got his hind legs up and his mane's flapping and his eyes are just like pierced on the enemy in front of him he sees the situation and he's like and he's ready to go he's ready to go He's furious at the repugnant nature of the, of the circumstance in front of him. Now, this is true, okay? Despite the fact he's kind of fumbling around with uh, the right way to work the Greek here, it is absolutely true. In this text, Jesus is just incensed at the situation that is in front of him. And he is angry. He's not angry at Mary or Martha. He's angry at the consequences of our sin and how the wages of sin tears people away from each other. And that would be death. So Jesus is absolutely incensed and he is very upset with this situation. Now, let me finish out the text because unfortunately, um, Pastor Rue here is he's not going to do a good job of this. And so we, you know, I think this is critical that we get this about Jesus. So let me go back to the text he was preaching from, and we'll start for context back at verse 28. 
When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, Mary saying uh, in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's true. And when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. And there it is, embramaomai, right? So he's deeply moved. He's very upset. He's vexed within his spirit, greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Now, that is the thing that, you know, so it's like, he, not only is he upset, he's going to do something, but where have you laid him? I, I'm going to go rescue him, Lazarus. I'm going to rescue Lazarus from the jaws of death. And so they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved, again came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by now there's, there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, and his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And that's the kind of the force in which Jesus is saying, Unbind him, let him go. He had just snatched one of his little lambs from the jaws of the grave. He's very upset at the at how this how sin has utterly destroyed us. And, you know, and the all of the consequences of this. So the idea here is is that Jesus has come to do something about this. And the question is, what has he come to do? And even now, in this pericope in John eleven, Jesus is already on his way to Jerusalem to suffer, to die for our sins, and rise again on the third day. And when he rises again, he tells his disciples to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. And when you go to nations like Bangkok, uh, is Bangkok a city? or No, it's a city, yeah. Is it in Thailand? Yeah, I think it's in Thailand. When you go to Bangkok, the city, or you go to India, okay, these are places where idolatry is running rampant. And you can see the consequences of evil because where the the mass of of humanity is are idolaters humanity doesn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance or the fruit of the spirit no it just totally slides into utter immorality and that's what he saw and and you know and people you know in india i mean the caste system in their own religion has helped keep this systemic poverty going on in India. This is part of this, you can say, is a result of, of the idolatry of Hinduism and the consequences of this. And so what's the solution? You want to make a difference in India? 
you're going to risk your life doing it too. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and call them to repent of worshiping their idols, of worshiping Shiva and Vishnu, and believe in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. For no other name, you know, no other name has been given except for the name of Jesus by which men must be saved, Scripture tells us. So that's kind of the idea here, is, is that if you really want to impact the systemic consequences of sin as they play out in human society. Just fighting poverty isn't going to do it. No. Fighting the sex uh, trade isn't going to do it. Yeah, fighting, you know, against corporate greed isn't going to do it. Because all of those are the fruit of our sin. You can't expect people who are dead in trespasses and sins to bear the fruit of the Spirit. But we continue. He's He's angry. He's furious. Jesus snorted like a war horse when he saw the circumstance. To me. Yeah, that sounds a bit absurd. You're kind of overplaying your Greek word there. When I came back from India, that's the sort of a God I wanted. A God who could understand that this is not okay. The world is not okay. We are not okay. And he sees the pain and he sees the suffering and he sees the anguish and he snorts like a war horse and he says, I'm going to do something about it. I don't know if you've got an experience with horses, but I have this horse. He died in the cyclone a little while ago, which is horrible, but he was awesome. His name was Fabio. And he was an 18-hand-high Italian stallion, all right? He was huge. His, his back was up to here. And when he put his head up, I couldn't touch his head. He was enormous. He had these massive legs. And he was a racehorse. Well, his mother was a racehorse, so he was just, he loved running. So I'd be on my farm up in Fort Far North Queensland, and I'd get up on Fabio, and we'd, we'd go, um, me and Fabio... He was awesome. He was so gentle. You know, you just, you know, you just rub him on his, you're a good horse, you're a good horse. And he'd love it. You, know, you just put his little chin out, his big chin out. He was such a good horse. And uh, we used to go in the, in the ocean as well with him. And I used to hold onto his tail while he swam and through the rivers. He was unreal, right? So now we're hearing about your, your horse, Fabio. How is this helping us understand the text? You've kind of abandoned it at this point. You just want a God who snorts like a war horse? Yeah, our God bled and died for our sins. He did more than snort. You know what I mean? Anyways, Fabio would chase these. Um, well, we, I would use him to herd up the cattle to get him to the yards. And so we'd be trotting along. You know? Actually... <laughs> When I was that, when I was, I had a lot of free time on the farm, so I, uh, I'd practice the trot sound of the horse. And um, I just, I don't know, I've always done the trot sound. So I'd be on the horse, and we're trotting along, and you'd get to to the point where there was a cow that broke loose, and Fabio was a happy happy horse, and then all of a sudden, this cow would break loose, and he'd go, start snorting, and the ears go back. And it's like, there's no point trying to steer the horse. He's going after the cow. He knows intrinsically something's wrong. 
So he runs and chases after this cow. There's no point in me trying to tell him where to go. He's, over, he's, he's way too strong, right? He's this fierce animal. So I just brace myself and I just hold on for the wild ride, hand on the saddle and we're off, right? And it's rainforest, so it's like... And so the, I remember this one time, the cattle goes one way and Fabio, you know, the boss, he says, I'm going to go up this way to cut him off. And it's steep as, right? And it's rainforest floor, so it's like really leafy. So we're cruising halfway up the hill and he's just like, the, the, the leaves are falling away. He's just clawing his way up. At one point, we were sliding down on his stomach. <laughs> And he's like, I'm getting the cow. It's like crawling, crawling, crawling. <laughs> and it was way too steep for me to use the rain. So I'm yeah, personal story time with Pastor Rue, you know. I'm holding onto his neck with both my hands like this. I'm parallel. And he's crawling up this mountainside, right? He makes it to the top. He cuts off the horse and brings him back to the herd. And Fabio, the boss Italian stallion, is just like, ah, oh, come on. And he trots around it again and we keep going. The thing is, you know when something's wrong because you're made in the image of God. You know when something... Yes and no. Actually, we're all born dead in trespasses and sins. We were originally created in the image of God, but that image of God has been blown out as a result of our sin. And we are all, by nature, objects of God's wrath. And you know, Read Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We, you know, so just because we're, you know we were originally made in the image of God doesn't mean that we intuitively know that uh, you know something is wrong in the world. The way we know that things are off is because Romans, the book of Romans, read chapters one and two, makes it clear that we have the law of God written on our hearts. That's not the same thing as saying that we we still can you know possess the imago dei. We it it. Uh. We do, and we really don't, if you get what I mean. We continue. Something's wrong. And the Holy Spirit within you, when something is off, you just got to hold on for the ride. you got to go. Because God made you to snort like a horse. <laughs> no. No. Yeah, no. Um... Now, if by that you mean, you know, that, you know, for us to feel indignation over injustice, much the way Habakkuk did, if you would. Well, that all comes as a result of the fruit of faith and, you know, I, you know, and the spirits working in us as he sanctifies us and is remaking us back into the image of God, if you would. But that's not going to be complete uh, in this cursed creation, not until the new heavens, new earth. But, ah. Man, he really did. He made you to see the brokenness in this society. He made you to see broken families and say, that is not okay. He made you to see child abuse and that is not okay. He made you to see corporate corruption and greed and that is not okay. He made you to stand up and snort like a horse in the things in your neighborhood and in your workplace to say, I will stand for things that are right. And I'm going to bring things back into alignment the way they're meant to be because I understand my calling. Just like Fabio knows what his is, I understand. Yeah, how is Jesus going to make things the way they should be? Yeah, destroying this creation, making new heavens, new earth. Yeah, 
you got to be careful here that you don't end up with a social gospel and some kind of you know premillennialism or something like that. Stand. What mine is. Because I'm made in the image of God. And he made me to snort like a horse at injustice. I really think tonight I want to give some of you guys permission to have this sense of righteous indignation for the stuff you see on the news, for the things you see in your neighborhood, for the self-harm, the eating disorders, for the purposelessness of life. I, want, I think God wants you to say, no, nah, not on my watch. And he wants you to give permission. He wants you to give, uh, to give you permission to say, I'm going to rear up against that. But here's the thing. It's so easy to rear up to be all angry about it. Notice he hasn't read the rest of the story. He hasn't continued the gospel text where Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead and says to unbind him. He's only told part of the story where he gives us Jesus's feelings of consternation and upset and, you know, his snorting like a war horse. Although that's real, that's not what that word means. Ugh. So the thing is, by only telling part of the story, he's picked out the part he likes. But it's like telling a joke without telling the punchline. And so by not telling the punchline, he can now make this about us. And it isn't. That's not okay. And this is very sad. And, and like, I don't know. I, I, I've done a fair bit of ugly crying when things go wrong. And like, oh, this is terrible. And, Ah, uh, and then, you know, you'll start Facebooking about it as if the people don't know how bad. Like, did you know the world sucks? And, you know, like, that's like our outlet. And I think we're called to do something about it, not just snort at it. If you feel that snort building up inside of you. <laughs> and what are we going to do? Because people born dead in trespasses and sins do not bear the fruit of the Spirit. You want to fight poverty? You want to fight the caste system in India? You want to fight the sex trade in in Southeast Asia? Preach Christ and him crucified for our sins and call them to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Only then will they bear the fruit of the Spirit. And will you make any kind of headway against any of this stuff? Because the more Christians there are, the more salt and light there is in the world. And it has an impact on on culture. But you're not supposed to go out and redeem culture. You're supposed to go out and preach Christ and him crucified and call people to repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That is the message through which Christ raises people from the dead. And it has an impact. But, yeah, so this is starting to steer into something that sounds very much akin to the social gospel. Then it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sure reminder that you're called to do something about it. You're called to do something about it. I mean, imagine Fabio, right? If he's trotting along and the horse breaks loose and he's just trotting along, it's like, oh, no. So we're back with Fabio again. Lord, Lord, he's a, he's a British 15th century horse. Lord, Lord, I beseech thee that rebellious cow is off again. You know, send a horse, send a horse to do something about it. I mean, imagine if Fabio 
just looked at the situation snorting, but not actually going and chasing after what's wrong and doing something about it. The horse understands. So what exactly is wrong? The answer is we're all born dead in trespasses and sins. That's what's wrong. Stands its calling, and the church has always had the calling. From the inception, from Christ, as we imitate him, we understand the, the life of Jesus gave us the fabric, the DNA as a church, to always be a red-hot, culture-engaging church on mission, to reconcile what's lost and to bring them back into unity and harmony with God. Now, let me point something out here. You talked about following Jesus' example. Keep in mind the miracle that Jesus performed. The miracle he performed was raising somebody from the dead. I seriously doubt that we're going to be able to, quote, follow Jesus' example here. And this has nothing to do with engaging the culture either. And this doesn't have anything to do with stopping something like poverty or dealing with the sex trade or deal, you know, name the, you know, prejudice and racism. It has, or you know, corp, you know, corporate corruption. It has nothing to do with that. This has to do with death. That's so. You're talking about using Jesus as an example because he snorted like a warhorse. Yeah, but keep in mind there was somebody in the grave that he went and snatched from the grave by raising them from the dead. <clears throat> yeah, I I don't see a lot of quote unquote applications here. Uh, as far as following Jesus's example, and that's you know, ugh, big problems with this. That's the sort of God we have. Now, our church—I'm so proud of it. We've got stacks and stacks of awesome initiatives happening everywhere, and, and but most of the initiatives of this church don't happen within the official structures of Nexus. Most of them happen in your lives, as the Holy Spirit leads you to go out and chase those things down. And, and the amazing thing is we get the model of Jesus and he's just incredibly loving and incredibly good and he's generous and he's kind and he's gentle with us. And that- yes, and he's also pretty rough with self-righteous you know, sinners who refuse to repent. Read where Jesus calls down woes on those cities who do not repent. So yes, he is kind, he is loving, but he is also all up in the face and in the grill of those who persist in sin and unbelief and do not repent and be forgiven. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazan. For if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have remained to this day, Jesus says. So we got to be careful not to, you know, yeah, he is loving, but he also is wrathful. Yeah, it, he had, he does have wrath, but truly he is kind towards us, and God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. But you're, it sounds like you're creating a sentimentalized love there, Pastor Rue. That's our model. So that's what we try to be as a church. We don't want to, you know, like yell at the world and judge them for their wrong. That's not what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus told people to repent. Again, and his disciples did the same thing. Oh boy, wow, this is just a tragic mess. It didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. So we want to be the people that do that. All of that stuff about the horse snorting and and doing something about it culminates at this point in the text. Where Jesus is in the middle of the circumstance, right? He's feeling it. It's true, it's real. I'm going to read the end of that passage. So, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said that on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen. I'm glad he's telling the rest of the story. Let's see where he lands the plane here. And strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. One of the reasons I love, I love Jesus is that he doesn't just have good intentions about doing something in this world. He has the power to do something in this world. This is a foretaste, an image of what he himself was going to do. He was going to go into a tomb and it was going to have a stone rolled in front of it. And then he would come out of the tomb himself and he would unbind people and set them free to go. Right. Unbind us from slavery to sin, death itself, and the devil. Yes, he has come to set the captives free. And that would be you and me. God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son. Good. Now we're hearing the gospel. It's not like a father-child thing. It's like a, it's a, um, he bears the essence of God thing. So, yeah, we just keep reading the text. God himself came, lived the life that we couldn't lead, went into the tomb representing Lazarus, representing us, representing our trials and tribulations. Representing? No, he was really stone cold dead. Not a, he was not representing anything. He was really stone cold, really like worm food dead representing all the junk of life and he lived it and he felt it and it upset him yeah why didn't you finish the text god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life finish the text but he didn't just snort about it he went some he went and did something about it. It cost him his life. It cost him pain. It cost him suffering. It cost him sacrifice. But he did it out of love because the Missio Dei is a God of love. And love motivates him to pursue you and to unbind that which is a stronghold of death in your life. That which is... That which is a stronghold of death in your life? Huh? It's causing you pain. That which is causing you to feel separated from God to f- feel separated. Yet most sinners don't feel separated from God. They're at war with him. Feel alienated from the pack to feel like you've gone off on a weird, strange path into the wilderness. The- this is some kind of weird existential theology. The rainforest. And God is the horse, the Fabio that chases you. <laughs> Oh, you're ruining my uh, my image of God in my mind. God is 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 a horse named Fabio. No, no, he's not. Down with love and commitment, and he does it one person at a time, all the way around. Not hearing anything about repentance and forgiveness of sins. You didn't finish John three sixteen. What on earth? Around the world, and his heart is that every single person would walk 
into the freedom, being unbound from the things that hold them. And they would go and do likewise, unbinding other people, seeing a situation that is captured, that has gone wrong. And he is sending us like he sent his son. In John 20, 22, it's one of No, no, no. He's not sending us like he sent his son. No, no, no. God the Father sent the son, right? Christ sends us and he's given us a message, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, which means we have to preach law and gospel. Wow, this is a mess. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so is born the church. The church that understands the why, that God has an incredible desire to bring all things back to good, all things back to harmony, all things back to right. All things back to good, all things back to right, all things back to harmony. Are you talking about the resurrection and the creation of the new heavens, new earth? And that is the mission of God, and that's the mission of his church, and that's why we are... Yeah, no, it's not my mission to you know make all things right on this cursed creation. No, it's not. It's not, and that's not the mission of the church. We are a church. The band can come up. That will always be a church that mobilizes the troops, so that we can look into our community and we can, we can see what's wrong, and we can be the agents of change. Agents of change. No, we're supposed to be the disciples who make disciples. Yeah, go and make disciples of all nations, not agents of change. Wow. That's why I love church. I don't love it because it's perfect. I don't love it because the people are perfect. I love it because when I came back from India, I wanted to believe that there was hope for our world. I love it that every single week I see lives transformed in this place. Are they brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? And I love it when you get a smile on your face and you realize I was made to know God and it brings life to you and it brings grace to you and you go to... Uh, can you tell me about the grace of Christ from the Bible, please? Go to Jesus and he's like, I'm making all things new in your life and people encounter him here in this church. People encounter him in our communities, at our house parties, at the Alpha Nights, at the various things we do. People encounter Jesus and that's what, it all, that's what it's all about. They encounter him. How, how so? So I've given my life for this cause. I can't see anything. Yeah, actually, Jesus gave his life for his sheep. <sighs> Man. Nothing greater to live for than to see hope legitimately come into the world. And the great thing is every single one of you have, has, a, has access to a part of the world that none of us has access to. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create... The false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience in order to make them, help them make decisions. Hmm. Access to. You've got access to people and to places that nobody else in this church has access to. So only you can bring the love and the goodness and the reconciliating power of God into that place. And we're going to do whatever we can as a church. Over the next few weeks, we've got a bunch of series to help us become as good as possible at being like Jesus and bringing reconciliation into the world. Uh, law, law, law. He, he never really actually preached the gospel, did he? Well, so that's where we're going as a church. I'm excited about that. Anybody else want to see good things happen in this world? Anybody else see good things happen in this world? Huh? feel that snort of like what the heck when you watch the news anybody else get disappointed with themselves when they contribute to that 
I do. <laughs> I, Wouldn't that be called sin? I do. But thank goodness for God's grace. Why don't we stand up? Well, there you have it. That was a train wreck. Yeah. You know, good intentions. You know, unfortunately, the road to hell is paved with those. That was not the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. If you're going to talk about reconciliation, uh, you know, the Second Corinthians 5 talks about this very clearly, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to let the world know that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. For God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. Yeah, none of that was there. Social gospel is kind of what we got there. But, you know, we all are supposed to now snort like a like a horse. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I'd love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at... Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>